Halloween. I think he'll come back. Halloween, the night he came home. Rated R. Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and now Stitcher. I'm your host with the most, Jim Branscombe, and join me as always is... Hey, what's up? It's Nick Vance. Paranoid Futures on Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram, and all that stuff. Hey, if you like what we're doing over here at the Cinematic Void podcast, uh, Cinematic Movie, and all things Cinematic Void, uh, then I highly encourage you to support us on Patreon. And I should mention that by joining the Patreon, you help make this podcast as well as the Cinematic Movie possible. Big shout out to Patreon for all that they do. Uh, so what are we talking about this week, man? We're going to be talking about on the next... Next four episodes of the Cinematic Void podcast, we're going to be talking about On Halloween, which is movies that take place on Halloween. This is the first of these episodes. We also got a bonus episode that we're going to squeeze in there. That's going to be a Patreon exclusive. So there's Halloween. Everyone kind of associates with horror films, but there's only a select few horror movies that take place actually on Halloween. And, you know, since this is the first episode, might as well be on the nose. Get it out of the way. Talk about... Coincidentally, there's a film called... Halloween. That's right. 1978, directed by John Carpenter, produced by Deborah Hill, who co-wrote it with Carpenter. Stars Jamie Lee Curtis, Donald Pleasance, PJ Souls, motherfucking Riff Randall from Rock and Roll High School, Nancy Loomis, and Charles Cyphers. Has cinematography by the great Dean Cundy, and future director Nick Castle plays The Shape. He went on to direct The Last Starfighter. And he's also in a band with John Carpenter, along with this guy, Tommy Lee Wallace, who was the production designer and editor, who also went on to become a director of his own, specifically Halloween 3. If somehow you've never, ever seen this fucking movie, or even have any conscious thoughts about it, the plot of the movie is about 15 years after Michael Myers killed his sister on Halloween night as a child, he breaks out of an insane asylum, which is really the back road to go to the Hollywood Reservoir. You know, look it up. It's a good location. A lot of things have been shot there, including Neon Maniacs. And he makes his way back to Haddonfield, Illinois, to kill again on Halloween night. So, Nick, do you remember the first time you saw John Carpenter's Halloween? You know, I, I saw it on VHS as a kid. With all the kind of popular, you know, just with Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, like, putting it in that grip of film, 
like as a kid it didn't stand out to me and it, it wasn't until i saw it again as like in my late teens that i really got an, an appreciation for it you know not only for the the history of it but for what it actually is which is a great fucking movie you know, at the first time I saw Halloween, I actually saw Halloween 2, the 1981 sequel, first. So it's kind of weird that I watched Mad Order. I mean, I kind of, like, knew what Halloween was. And, like, I remember, like, man, Halloween 2 kind of kicks ass. I really like this movie. Actually, you know, I almost think, I could be wrong, I think I might have saw Halloween 2 and 3 before I saw Halloween. Nice. But, <laughs> I mean, it is just what was available. I remember... Um, the first time I actually saw Halloween, I bought a VHS from Blockbuster because there was a Blockbuster-branded VHS of Halloween. I guess they licensed it for whatever reason. So that's what I bought. It was like two ninety nine, And I remember I actually watched it one morning before going to school or, like, leaving for high school, and I was just like, God damn, that was fucking good. And this is after seeing at least Halloween 2, maybe Halloween 3. But then it was one of those things that like, this is really good. It's really well made. It's really well done. Obviously he's got a classic soundtrack where I've already heard the music a million times before ever actually seeing the movie. And it was one of those things where it's just like, wow, this is really good. And you keep going back to it's like, it's really good. It's really fucking good. Like there's no scene out of place. It's just tight. I mean, it's, I, I want to use the jaws comparison. And the reason why I'm doing that is because, I've been to screenings of both Halloween and Jaws where, like, because younger audience tend to want to laugh or be above the movie, especially if it's older, and they're like, ha, 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 I'm smarter than a movie, ha, ha, ha. And then, and I've watched it without fail in both Jaws and Halloween where the movie just gets them, and then they're sucked in, and it's just like, you ain't laughing now, motherfucker, you're fucking pissing your pants. And it's really incredible because, like, I watched it a few years ago when we showed it at Beyond Fest, and... Again, people were like, uh, you know, people hadn't really seen her, thought they were going to laugh it off, and it just, like, takes them. It's, it's, <laughs> it's really, really fucking well done. I mean, you don't need two other people to talk the accolades of this movie when there's been countless thousands, <laughs> millions of people that love this movie. It is that good. So what's really important about Halloween, I guess in the context, it, it was the movie that kicked off the big slasher craze that filled the 80s, where you got all your Friday the 13th and My Bloody Valentine's and April Fool's Days and all that shit. I'll say this, the opening credit sequence, the music and that pumpkin, is one of the best credit sequences ever done. You know, the high standard for like credit sequences films have always been like Saul Bass, who did a lot of the Alfred Hitchcock movies, and he also did Seconds and things like that. Phase 4. We talked about. Yeah. It's really simple because all it is is a jack-o'-lantern and it's just the camera like holding on it and then like it kind of zooms in, the light goes out and you just have inside the pumpkin glowing and then it goes dark. It's, I mean, it really sets the tone for what you're getting into. It sets, to, it's perfect. Like, I'm not saying the movie's entirely flawless because there's obviously no movie's really flawless, but like whatever shortcomings it may have, it's still a fucking perfect movie. If you can go from start to finish and you're just like, no matter how many times I've seen Halloween, it's just like, wow, that's still great. Besides the opening credit sequence, it also starts out with a pretty ambitious opening, which is that long steady cam shot. There, there's actually little hidden cuts in there, and like it's not completely like one take, but like it's pretty seamless in how they execute it. And it's like, I mean, yeah, I think this is a horror movie shot for three hundred thousand in nineteen seventies money, and 
they spend most of the money on getting really good equipment because Dean Cundy was like, hey, I'm the cinematographer. I can get us a deal. We can get, like, Panavision cameras. We can shoot at scope. And, you know, it, it, it spent its money where a lot of, you know, lo-fi horror movies and, like, independent movies don't. They spend it on, like, the aesthetic of making it look good and, like, you know, making it feel like a... I don't want to say real movie, because obviously it's a real movie, but you've seen a lot of low-budget movies where, like, you can tell it's fucking cheap. And at no point does Halloween feel cheap on, like, any level. I mean, the, the movie's got an impact that, like, I don't really need to say it, you don't really need to say it, it's already been said. But, like, you know, it's it's still a favorite, and I think, like Jaws, like Psycho, like any of those classic horror movies, it just has that little intangible thing. I mean, it's not even a little intangible thing, it's a large intangible thing that, like, makes it stand out and, like, no matter how many sequels are made, no matter how many other horror movies are made, it's just going to be, it's the upper echelon. The reason why Halloween came about is that producer Erwin Yoblins pitched ideas, like, I want to make a movie called The Babysitter Murders. It, you know, whatever you want to do, it just has to have babysitters and murder in it. So, <laughs> so that was the, the backbone of Halloween. Now, Black Christmas, which is one of the big influences on Halloween. Mm -hmm. And another influence is Dario Argento's Deep Red. So the slasher kind of evolved out of the giallo a little bit, and Halloween was kind of like one of the movies that took from it because Carpenter readily acknowledges that he's seen Deep Red. Okay. And I, I don't know what the black Christmas history is. I know he was friends with Bob Clark, and I remember, Christ, this is back in like 96, 7, maybe 8. There was an issue of Fangoria that had an article, an interview with Bob Clark, talking specifically about Black Christmas. And Clark and Carpenter had known each other, and Carpenter was originally going to work on some like Killer Yeti movie or something like that. And <laughs> something that some people might know, some people might not know, that you know, Black Christmas is a phenomenal movie. If you haven't seen Black Christmas, which I think at this point, it's it might not be Halloween level, but I think it's avail widely available enough that, like... You can see it now. It's got a nice Blu-ray on Shout Factory. If you live in L.A., if the theater was still open, New Beverly would be playing it right on Christmas time, just like clockwork. There's a lot of things in Black Christmas that obviously ended up Halloween. There's a you know killer you never get to see their face. There's the POV of the killer walking around, stalking, that kind of stuff. And incidentally enough, Bob Clark had planned to do a sequel to Black Christmas called Halloween. And the movie was going to start with the killer from Black Christmas breaking out of an insane asylum and going on a killing spree on Halloween. I know Carpenter had talked to Clark about it. It's like, hey, are you still doing that like Black Christmas sequel Halloween? I, there's a couple, there's conflicting things on the internet because that's what the internet does. But more or less, like, Carpenter kind of like, I don't say borrowed, but like him and the, the genesis of Halloween is definitely in Black Christmas. And I don't think you could really ever have a Halloween without Black Christmas. And that's not a knock on Halloween, but it's definitely an influence. And I, the other thing I mentioned is Dario Argento and Deep Red. Deep Red, I, I, it was released as the Hatchet Murders here. I know Carpenter's seen it because, like, he really loved the score to it. He loved that Goblin score. And one of the biggest influences on Halloween, actually one of the most notable things from Halloween, before we talk about the influence, is John Carpenter's score. It's an all-timer. Like, you can't walk into a fucking spirit Halloween without hearing the Halloween theme at this point. <laughs> the inspiration for the Halloween theme, if you listen to the, the main theme to Deep Red, you, you'll see the connection. It, there's definitely shared DNA. Um, they're not exactly the same, but, like, they're cousins. Just like 
Tubular Bells is a cousin to the Deep Red theme. It's just, it's weird. You go from Exorcist, Deep Red, to Halloween, and there's just this through line of, like, not necessarily stealing or copying, but just there's an influence that carries through. And, again, all three of those soundtracks are fucking, you know, well-known. You can't fuck with them. They're, they're great. And, but they're all, they have a shared origin. I bet, I bet you could find a lot of versions of people rapping over the Halloween theme, but there's only one deep red rap. I know. You fucking big ups <laughs> to Dr. Felix, and Claudio Simonetti and the Simonetti Horror Project. I, how many times have we talked about the deep red theme now? Every podcast? Yeah, it's getting up there. For a while, we were the Black Flag podcast, but really we're the deep red rap podcast. A couple other things. Haddonfield which is supposed to be Haddonfield, Illinois in the movie, is actually based upon Haddonfield, New Jersey, where Deborah Hill had grown up. And incidentally enough, when back in the day when I used to go with my friend Jim DeHaven and Bruce Holchek to exhume film screens in New Jersey, we went up the New Jersey Turnpike, and we'd pass by the Haddonfield exit. But funny enough, the other town on the Haddonfield exit was a place called Voorhees. Nice. So it's just like, I was like, is that a coincidence? How does that work? So, you know, I think it's exit two on the New Jersey Turnpike. So if you want to make a pit stop to go to the real Haddonfield and something called Voorhees that may or may not be related to Friday the 13th, there you go. Maybe there's a lake there. Maybe there is a lake there. I mean, it's New Jersey, so it's going to be a toxic waste lake. But yeah. <laughs> the, uh, there's actually another movie that has a big connection to Halloween, and it's also pretty obvious, but it's Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. And, you know, the most obvious part of it is Psycho, star Janet Lee. Halloween stars Jamie Lee Curtis, who's Janet Lee's daughter. And I'm a hundred million percent sure that was, like, not coincidence. It's like, oh, well, that's a marketing ploy right there. We love a little nepotism in Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, I don't <laughs> know if the nepotism helped because, like, it wasn't a big movie. Yeah. I'm sure if Janet Lee was like trying to get her daughter into acting, it wouldn't be the first thing she would do wouldn't be a fucking low budget horror movie. But from Carpenter and Hill's perspective, it's like that's a big get because like that's you you know, starring the daughter of Janet Lee in another horror movie. That's a fucking selling point. Sick. The other big cast thing, and this was like I think this is where they spent the most money on an actor was getting Donald Pleasance. Donald Pleasance is a phenomenal actor. Check out his performance in Deathline. He's fantastic fucking cul-de-sac. And he always played really, like, unhinged, weird, kind of, like, psychotic characters. So, like, when he plays Loomis in this movie, which, again, is another reference to Psycho, because one of the characters in Psycho is named Sam Loomis. See? Full awesome. circle here. So, I mean, Pleasance actually gives a, I don't want to say restrained performance, but, like, it was different from what he was doing, because, like, he was going, like, ape shit. Like, if you've seen him in Wake and Fright or anything like that, he just, like would always go for it and this is like subdued and like you know he's showing fear because he's actually afraid of like what michael myers is going to do incidentally enough pleasance was the third choice the two choices that came before him which also makes sense because they came out of the same kind of acting circle was christopher lee and peter cushing and both of them turned down halloween because they didn't pay enough granted the same year that or the year before um, halloween came out peter cushing was in star wars so it's like yeah, I don't need that. And Christopher Lee, who's been in a lot of great stuff, but also had some poor... He's like the Nas of actors. <laughs> like, he sometimes picks, like, bad roles, like Nas picks bad beats. And his performance is good on him. 
are good in those movies, but like some people just want to act, man. Some people just want to act, but like he turned down Halloween for the same reason, and then he ended up saying it was one of the biggest regrets he had in his career. I guess I'd say that too if I ended up being howling too, but but Donald Pleasance kills it. Donald Pleasant so, kills it. I'm glad that he's the one. He's, I mean, he's the one. He's the one, and like it's it's a great performance. Like that's the, that's the thing about this movie. It's like it it overcomes like. What could have easily been a low-budget slasher movie that could have been, like, just just something that you would, like, occasionally throw on. But, like, now it's a classic. And, again, I think it's a combination of the right actors, the right marketing, which is tying in Jamie Lee Curtis with her mom, Janet Lee, with the psycho Halloween connection. You know, Donald Pleasance lending some credibility. And Carpenter's score. Like, I, my understanding is they did test screenings without the score, and people were like, this shit sucks. Whoa. And, you know, I think Halloween's good, but I do think, like, you know, it's it's more than icing on the cake. It's like... It's, it's definitely the sum of its parts. Yeah. It's like, the, could you imagine watching Halloween without that score? Nope. Not, not at all. <laughs> the Michael Myers mask is a William Shatner mask turned inside out, because maybe not everyone knows that, but that's, that's something to know. It's not actually turned inside out, it's just repainted over. But, it, yeah, it's a... Excuse me. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's a it's, it's a Captain Kirk mask from Star Trek that Tommy Lee Wallace like painted over and like I think fucked with the hair a little bit, but right yeah. So in a way, William Shatner's also in Halloween. Uh, one last thing about Halloween before we move on is um, in 1981, I believe, which was the year that Halloween had its TV network debut. It played on NBC. And it played right before SNL. And again, great piece of marketing is they had Donald Pleasance be the host of SNL that night. So you see Halloween, you go in SNL, Donald Pleasance host. But it's also notable for the time that Fear played SNL. Also known as the greatest SNL episode of all time. Yeah. I don't think SNL actually allows that episode on air. But if you go on YouTube, you can find the Fear performance. And it's fucking great because like a bunch of punks from Washington, D.C., including Emika from... Minor Threat, Henry Rollins before he was in Black Flag. Like, all the DC punks, like, drove up to be in the mosh pit there. And also, there's a great story that Ian tells. I think you can just just look up for it on YouTube. You'll find it pretty easy where he talks about, like, what happened. Fear I played because, like, they started fucking up the studio. So, like, the security grabbed him, took him to a back room and said, don't do anything. And they left him with a phone. So they just picked up the phone and started making all kinds of crazy long-distance calls on the SNL's dime. <laughs> Because as that, they should. As they should, because it's punk rock. Now, logic indicates that since we talked about Halloween, we're going to talk about Halloween 2 next. And we are. But I'm pulling a fucking bait and switch. We're not talking about the actual follow-up to Halloween 2 or the recent incarnation that came out in 2018. Again, curveball from hell. We're going to be talking about Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 from 2009. And I'm going to start off by saying that when Rob Zombie's first Halloween remake, the original one came out that he did, I fucking hated it. And I actually hated it from the first frame the movie hit. And I was in misery the whole duration of the movie. I got roped into going with our mutual friend Bruce Holchek. And I was just like so mad. And he was so mad. And I was like, why are you mad for it? It was your idea to go see this fucking thing. And when they announced the sequel, it's just like, there's no way in fuck I'm going to go back and see a sequel to this movie. Like, it, it was probably the most, one of the most painful movie-going experiences I had was watching that movie. 
I just, I did not like it. And I'm not trying to be mean or whatever, but just like everything about it did not connect with me. And it was just like misery. So what happened was a couple days earlier, I had gone to the theater and seen the Sorority Row movie, which is a remake of House on Sorority Row. And then Bruce had called up and was like, hey, let's go to the movies. I want to see either Sorority Row or Halloween 2. And I knew he'd get pissed that we'd gone and seen Sorority Row without him. So <laughs> instead of hearing him bitch about, why didn't you go with me? Why didn't you wait? I was like, you know, I'm not in the mood for the Sorority Row remake or whatever. So this and is your confession. This is my confession. And from what I remember the Sorority Row remake, it wasn't bad. I mean, I don't remember much from it because that was the only time I've seen it. But it's just like I didn't really want to sit through the movie again that soon. It wasn't that kind of movie. So I was like, fine, we'll go see Halloween 2. And we're like, how bad could it be? That's what we said when we went in for Halloween 1. Or Rob Zombie's Halloween 1, I should say. And at the conclusion of the movie, actually during the movie, I don't know if the bar was so low because of like that first one. But I was like, huh, kind of liked it. And I didn't like everything about it, but I liked enough of it where it's like, you know, kudos, Rob Zombie. I feel like you're trying to do things and you're doing more interesting things than you normally do in your movies, which are usually like a lot of over-the-top violence, nods to exploitation movies that don't necessarily hit their mark, and lots of really cringe dialogue. And all those things are still in Halloween, too. But there's a lot of really, really, really good stuff in there. And I'll say this. It, this is... Between this and Lords of Salem, these are my two favorite movies he's made. And I feel like at those movies, he was like... He was growing as a filmmaker. He's figuring out how to take his Rob Zombie aesthetic while mixing it with, like, you know, a film... You know, not just being like, this is a Rob Zombie movie. This is, like, an attempt to make, like, a movie. And I just happen to be Rob Zombie directing it. Dude, Rob Zombie makes a sequel to his already bad Halloween movie. And now he thinks he's fucking David Lynch or something. <laughs> and he's fucking, you know, making a sequel to a fucking Halloween. It's Halloween and there's a fucking unicorn or whatever the fuck. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of the things that doesn't work in the movie. And like I said, there's quite a lot that doesn't work in this movie. But... Just before we get into it a little bit more, um, the movie stars Scott, or the movie stars Scout Taylor Compton, Malcolm McDowell, Tyler Maine, Daniel Harris, who was in Halloween four and five, Brad Dwarf, and a plethora of horror actors that you've seen sitting behind a table at a horror convention. And there's no reason why like this movie should work. And in fact, I don't even think Rob Zombie wanted to even make a sequel to Halloween. Because the first one's so successful, they were just going to make one anyway. I think he's like, well, if you're going to make it, I want control of it. And I just want to, you know, let me just have the reins. And you're like, okay, you can do what you want. And what he ended up doing is, I don't think he made a movie that made Rob Zombie fans happy. I know he didn't make a movie that made Halloween fans happy. And I, you know, that's ballsy. I, I think it was just in that era of... Uh... Like saw human centipede torture porn horror films, you know, and he he was just like the kills in these Halloween movies are like way over the top. Like, I don't know, man. That's I guess that's my take on it. Is just like for some reason, and you know, I fucking love horror movies, but like it's just come on, man. It, it it's it's <laughs> hit it's ta it's literally taking the knife 
and stabbing you 40 times when you really could have done it in five. Yeah, I mean, you know, I like that sometimes, but I, I, I don't love this movie, that's for sure. I mean... I don't know the, if I made that clear. I mean, you've made it clear, and like... <laughs> I, it, it seems weird that like I'm the one defending this yeah. and you're the one like yeah, no, you always surprise me that you love this one but hey I it's not love it's just like because there's enough genuine good things in there like I mean the core of the movie is about trauma and recovering from trauma and um Scout's um, Laurie Strode character's movie is just like went through a really terrible thing in the first one and the movie is more or less about her trying to recover and like you know get her life back and then in the meantime, you have Michael Myers, who... This is the one interesting thing I like about this Halloween that no other Halloween movie really does. It shows you what a serial killer does in the off-season. Because <laughs> when's Michael Myers really work? Halloween time. So there's a long stretch where it's like building up to Halloween. He's like walking through the woods, walking down the road. He's like not even wearing the mask. And yeah, you get to see what Michael Myers does in an off-time, which is still kill people, just not with the mask on. Uh, I mean, the thing is, like, the character, the character, <laughs> I can't You're go so on. Cause... fucking stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Look, man. But it's true. But it's true. It's I just like, it. literally, it's like. It's like that fucking Behind the Mask movie. It is Behind the Mask, except it's not Leslie Vernon. It's Michael Myers just fucking hitchhiking across country, trying to get back to Haddonfield so he can kill again, except he's killing along the way. But I don't know. I mean, I don't know if those kills count because he's not wearing the Michael Myers mask. He's just wearing a fucking hoodie up. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't even know why I'm defending this movie. But it, <laughs> that I, I'm defending it because I think there are things in it that generally do work and I think are, like, strong for, like, a Rob Zombie movie and let alone, like, a lot of horror movies. Like, the, the characterization, the character development is, like, really strong, which is not a thing that you would find in his other movies. And I'm not necessarily a fan of Rob Zombie, and I go and say, like, this and Lords of Salem are the only ones I like, and even then, it's just like, they're two and a half star movies. <laughs> I, I can't give them four, but, like, the things I like in those movies, I like a lot. But on the flip side, the things I don't like, I really don't like. But something I do like about this movie, there's a couple things. My favorite scene, though, and it's probably a fucking throwaway and really has nothing to do with it, is um, it deals with Malcolm McDowell's own Loomis character. And basically, I kind of like this twist that Rob's not with him. He just made him like a shit heel, like he's hawking a book now about like how I fought Michael Myers and this whole thing. It's just, it's a complete flip on like Donald Pleasant's like in between of being like empathetic and psychotic trying to stop Michael Myers. So he's hawking this book on a talk show that's hosted by Chris Hardwick, who I am not sure if he's in character or not, but also has Weird Al in it. So it's Malcolm McDowell, Chris Hardwick, and Weird Al, and the scene's fucking hilarious. And I'm pretty sure it's mostly improv, but it, it, it was really good. Does it belong in the movie? I don't know, but it, I think it's better that it's there. And, you know, there's the extended Halloween party se sequence where, like, Laurie Strode and all of her friends kind of go hang out and, like, blowing off steam, just, like, you know, trying to, you know, it's like, I'm not going to let this really terrible thing take away from me having fun. Although, in hindsight, what happens afterwards, maybe you should skip the party. I don't know. Like I said, like, this in Lords of Salem, I thought Rob Zombie was really pushing and, like, growing as a filmmaker. And then, 
he did another movie set on Halloween called 31, where I think he basically took that goodwill and just put it in the toilet and flushed it away. <laughs> yeah, I'm a Halloween 2 Rob Zombie defender. I'm sure I have other things that people are like, what the fuck? What's going on? And I can, I can feel the podcast, like, one star is coming for this. But so what's your Twitter handle? Is cinematic <laughs> underscore void. And, yeah, I'll defend it. And I'm not the only one. There's a lot of people that actually defend this one. Most people still genuinely dislike his first hack or stab at Michael Myers and Halloween. I mean, the reason why I, I don't like it, it makes it seem like one of those Discovery Channel-like shows where they talk about, like, inside the mind of a serial killer. He killed animals growing up. I, like, it just follows that and just, like, takes the... It demystifies Michael Myers until he's just, like, a... He's just a white trash kid who goes out on a killing spree. I'm surprised Michael Myers didn't smoke meth in the first one. And, again, all that shit's still in part two, but I think the other stuff he does in it outweighs the things that I don't like. If you have the box set or you have a copy on DVD or Blu-ray, give it another spin. Give it a reevaluation. Oh, and one last thing, and this is a bias. It has the band Void, DC hardcore punk band, on the soundtrack, which I guess that might be part of the bias. But, I mean, literally, they just play, like, 30, 40 seconds of a Void song. I definitely remember a Black Flag being on, on maybe the soundtrack of the first one, I can't remember, but of, in one of the two. I, I think... So, um, there's I, your Black Flag, I uh, think, yeah. For this I podcast. think Scout's Laurie Strode at one point wears a Jealous Again shirt. I could be mm. wrong. Someone can correct me. I remember someone wearing a Black Flag shirt. Yeah. It was Jealous Again, so... I think a car pulls up and it's playing Black Flag or something. I don't know. I can't remember. I can't there, remember. It's a car pulling up that plays Void, but there's definitely a Black Flag shirt. So, it's... My bad. You know, it's got some punk points. Rob Zombie's just trying to be that cool dad. <laughs> I don't know if he's. I don't know if he's got points. I mean, <laughs> I guess he. I, okay, I dig it back. He's like an OG rocker. <laughs> I mean, he play, he but play. I hate his fucking movies. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll just leave it at that. But early white zombies sick. Actually, most white zombies sick. I, you know, I do like a lot of the white zombie records. I'm not big on his solo career, and I, I think also the solo career is also a reflection of his filmmaking career. So. Again, I think he does good things in both. It's just not for me. You know, he's got an audience for it. That's great. But, again, outside of this and Lords of Salem, it's not for me. Now, switching gears back to the logical continuation of this conversation, we're going to move on to what was a sequel to the original Halloween and Halloween 2, except it had nothing to do with Michael Myers or Dr. Loomis, or Laurie Strode. I can only be talking about Halloween 3, Season of the Witch from 1982, with stars Tom Atkins, everyone's favorite actor, Night of the Creeps, Stacey Nelkin, and Dan Hurley, who's also in RoboCop, and uh, Twin Peaks, and a bunch of other stuff. I unabashedly love this movie, and I've loved this movie since I originally saw it, maybe at the same time I saw Halloween 2, before I saw Halloween 1, but again, my memory's a little blurry on that. So, how Halloween 3 came about, and, you know, I'm retelling it, you probably already know it, but, hey, it's worth reiteration. Carpenter, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill wanted to step away from Michael Myers and turn Halloween into an anthology series, where every year there'd be a different film set on Halloween. And Halloween 3 Season Witch was the first, and unfortunately last, of this. And, 
you know, to this day, I kind of wonder, had Halloween 3 actually been a hit, I feel like the Halloween franchise would have opened doors for so many different filmmakers, so many different ideas, so many original ideas, than what it ended up becoming. If you've never seen Halloween 3, kids all over America want silver shamrock masks for Halloween. Dr. Daniel Chalice, played by Atkins, seeks to uncover a plot by silver shamrock owner Connell Cochran and wants to figure out why he wants these kids to wear these masks. The movie's produced by Deborah Hill, cinematography again by the great Dean Cundey. I think it's some of his best like work from that era, the whole like Car Carpenter set series. And most importantly, I think it also has John Carpenter and Alan Howard's best soundtrack, which is, we'll talk about a little bit later, but I think the Halloween 3 soundtrack is like, a fucking masterpiece. Originally, Joe Dante was supposed to direct Halloween 3, and I guess Joe's just had bad luck with Part 3s because he was also supposed to be the original director of Jaws 3 when it was supposed to be a spoof kind of comedy movie called Jaws 3 People Zero. So, not much luck on Part 3s for Joe, but... It still ended up being a... a comedy or a spoof just not by a joe dante what halloween 3 jaws 3 jaws 3 yeah <laughs> that fucking floating shark in 3d is yeah that i don't know that that i mean that is high comedy with dante out the film ended up being directed by carpenter's former editor production designer and friend tommy lee wallace and incidentally enough wallace was supposed to be the original director for halloween 2 and he's like nah this kind of <clears> sucks i don't want to do it so he didn't do it, and Carpenter's like, what the fuck? But then they kind of hit him back to do part three. And although Wallace is the only credited writer on this script, it was actually mostly written by Nigel Neal, who's best known for writing the Quatermass series, with some rewrites by John Carpenter and Wallace as well. Now, Nigel actually asked his name to be removed from the final script, and it had nothing to do with like the rewrites or um, you know, Tommy Lee Wallace's direction, but because one of the producers of the movie, the um, infamous Dino De Laurentiis, wanted more violence and gore because at the time this movie came out, which is like 82, 83, the slasher boom was on. So like movies were getting more gory and bloody thanks to the effects people like Tom Savini and whatnot. So he upped the gore and Nigel wasn't big on it, so he just asked to have his name removed. So Nick, what was your first impression on seeing Halloween 3? This is another one that, uh, that, that you sang the praises of early on. Uh, so I kind of checked it out knowing that you already loved it and, and went into it, you know, just kind of with, with those expectations that like, this is going to be sick and I've, I've always loved this. And, uh, and I actually watched this yesterday just, you know, I, I probably haven't seen it in maybe five years. I had a, probably five years ago, I straight up just watched every Halloween, like in a row. Like I just had a week where I just like watched them, you know, but I haven't seen this one in a minute. Watched it again yesterday, and fuck, I, I love this so much, dude. It's so fun. But so, first impression, now impression, like, dude, I mean, if you haven't seen Season of the Witch, which I, I feel like, you know, it's a cult classic at this point, but there was, a, there was a time where people didn't check this out because they heard Michael Myers wasn't in it or whatever the fuck. I mean, when I saw it, I, I already knew going in that Michael Myers wasn't in it, but, like, the V, it was, um... I got Halloween 2 and Halloween 3. Uh, there was a label called Good Times that licensed it from Universal. And they were kind of cheapo, like, EP tape label back in the day. So I got both of those. And I remember the cover to Halloween 3 because it had the three trick-or-treaters, the, the skull, the pumpkin, the witch mask on there. And then it had this weird, like, um, kind of, like, alien, like, I don't know what the fuck you would call it. It's up in the sky, like, this giant face of, like, you know, 
technology witchcraft thing in the background. I was like, wow, this looks fucking cool. <laughs> and I remember watching it and just being like enamored with it because it's like, wow, this this is really interesting. And like, obviously, you know, Halloween three isn't without its own faults, and we'll get back into those in a little bit. But like, first impression was like, you know, it felt like a movie set on Halloween. I thought the soundtrack fucking kicked major ass, and like, you know, Tom Atkins is great, and actually everyone that's in this movie is really, really good. It's it's so fun, like it's so of its time. It's like it's just colorful and like super violent. Like when the shit pops off, it goes down. Yeah, I mean the movie the movie's dark, and in a way that Halloween isn't because it's just like you know it's dealing with child murder. If you look with the movies like real influence are there's you know there's robots there's stonehenge there's occultism oh, there's yeah, like, like computerism stonehenge. you know <laughs> yeah the, yeah i mean they fucking they fucking steal like a giant piece of stonehenge in the movie and it's just like what i mean not many movies would try that or have that as a plot point but like it, it was just like whoa that's cool and like i mean i'm like 13 14 or 15 i can't remember the exact age when like i saw this movie but it's just like wow this is like really interesting i was like captivated by it you know taking out the logical part of it but it's just like (laughs) on a movie just getting sucked in you don't need logic when you're having this much fun no you don't and you know the biggest influence on this movie is like it's obviously not michael myers and slasher mill it's more of a like pod person movie so it's more in line with like invasions of the body snatchers and things like that obviously there's a few things that don't work and don't make sense, which is, if you think about the whole Cochran's plan of killing all these children at, like, 8 p.m. or whatever the time is, time zones. Yeah. Unless, like, the whole thing was a rolling thing, like, 8 p.m. East Coast time, all these fucking kids are dead, and no one would stop it, so just go through time zone, time zone, time zone. Because, like, you know, the movie's pre-internet, and I'm sure communication would be slow, so, like, maybe that isn't that much of a flaw. Cochran can pull it off. Yeah, Cochran pull it off. Just like wiping out people time zone at a time. <laughs> I take it back. That's not a flaw. It, it's kind of like it's cold blooded because he's like, yeah, you know it's coming, West Coast. But I mean, I if he can transport it. Stonehenge, yeah, <laughs> if he can, cha- if he can transport Stonehenge to California from England, no time zones don't matter at all. Hey, what does he say? He's just something about how it's a secret. Like he doesn't reveal. You know, the magician doesn't reveal his tricks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's fine. I mean, it's interesting because I feel like, because um, Dan Hurley is an Irish actor. And obviously a lot of this has to do based on like, you know, the Celtic Irish folklore and stuff like that. Maybe not exact, but like because of who he is and like how he played the role, there's a credence to all that stuff. And like, he's saying some like dark, like older stuff here back in pagan times. And that, that's what I really like about it, too, because, like, obviously it's dealing with modern technology with these microchips that can, like, once, like, this signal on the TV goes off, it just blows a fucking kid's head off. But it's also, like, dealing with the, not Lovecraft-level old ones, but, like, definitely, like, the legit, you know, pagans and Cel- Celtics back in the day. And it's really deep, really dark, really interesting. And, you know, speaking of things that don't work, and this is the knock this movie gets... It probably still gets it now, but, like, it was much worse back in the day. And I'm going to call bullshit on this, is that there's no fucking Michael Myers in it. Because there doesn't need to be Michael Myers. He got shot in the eyes and set on the fire in a Halloween 2. Motherfucker's dead. Let, I don't, him, let him die. Let, let him, him die. But, yeah. It, let it, the man rest. Let the man rest. It, it's fucking garbage. And, 
honestly, he does appear in the movie. He appears in a TV commercial of them. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was great. And and also, to tie back to the first two Halloweens, Jamie Lee Curtis appears in it. Not by her, like, being present in the movie, but her voice. She's the voice on the loudspeaker in the town that Silver Shamrock's located in, like, doing, like, time for curfew, that kind of stuff. So, you know, it connects, like, basically Carpenter, Deborah Hill, Dean Cudney, and Jamie Lee Curtis all continue through the first three Halloweens in various forms. Uh, You had mentioned the brilliance of the soundtrack earlier. Uh, we we need to acknowledge specifically the brilliance of the TV commercial, which is the thing that kind of uh, triggers the kids when they have the masks on Halloween, like it's that whole thing. But uh, it's so annoying, and like that. But that's it's a commercial. That's the point. It's like the, that's every commercial. It's the same fucking thing over and over, and it like drills it in your head. It's so perfect. What what do you think about the silver silver shamrock song? I mean, essentially, all it is is London Bridge, but it's just like. <laughs> To the point that, like, it's the most annoying version of London Bridge. It had to be annoying because that's what affected marketing. It's so is. good. I mean, that's it drives everyone crazy. I mean, as it does, like, that's yeah. the, I don't want to give anything away, but, like, ah, that song. That song, I mean, <laughs> it, it plays a part because every time it comes in, it's like a countdown to, like, Armageddon almost. It's like, three more days to Halloween, 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 three more days to Halloween, Silver Shamrock. And then it just keeps going down and down and, like, it's a doomsday clock to basically using the public domain London Bridge. Is it London Bridge or is it... Um, no, it's Row, Row Your Boat. Uh, Which one is it? I don't know. Na, 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 na. Yeah, it's London Bridge. Sorry. I was right the first time. Okay. I, I was second-guessing <laughs> second myself. This soundtrack, for the longest time, back when I was in college, early college, in the early 2000s, this was like finding the Halloween 3 soundtrack on vinyl was a holy grail. I own movie soundtracks because, like, you know, I was in the punk and hardcore and hip-hop and, like, a lot of that stuff was on vinyl. But you, I would occasionally hit up, like, used record stores and I'd always hit the soundtrack section. And sometimes you find, like, interesting things like Phantom of the Paradise, that kind of stuff. And if you went to New York, you get cool reissues of, like, the Goblin stuff and the Italian soundtracks. But I was always on the hunt of Halloween 3. And one year... Before I went to Salem, Massachusetts, my friend Jim DeHaven, his cousin, went to Salem and they went to this record store. I believe it's called the Sound Exchange or Record Exchange, something like that. I don't know if it still exists. It, at least it was like maybe three or four years ago when I last went. And he fucking found a copy of Halloween 3 on vinyl. And I was fucking pissed. One, because I didn't get to go to Salem. Two, he got this fucking record. So it became this hunt to find this goddamn record. And... I think I got a CD of it at some point, and then, like, I got MP3s because it was expanded. But it took a while to actually get an OG vinyl release, and I had to eBay it, and then, you know, I paid 60 bucks, which is not... It seems like a lot, but, like, it's really not a lot for the record. And then, I guess maybe, at this point, probably six, seven, eight years ago now, Death Waltz Records did the first reissue of it, and I snatched that shit up, too. And, like, there's just something about the soundtrack where I think, like, with Carpenter and Howarth working together, it's because it's different. And it's a really driving soundtrack. It's really haunting. It's really eerie. It's, like, very, very synth-heavy, which obviously all the Carpenter stuff is, but, like, this one is, like, definitely just, like, synth keyboard and just, like, loops and shit like that. And it just, it sets a mood. Like, you know, sometimes when I was, like, writing stuff or, like, you know, I was just, like, you know, trying to get in, like, a mindset for things. Like, you know, it's Halloween season. Drive around the Halloween 3 soundtrack. 
I mean, it's that good. And, you know, it reminds me, like, it's probably been like eight or nine years ago now. I went to a screening at the Chinese for They Live in Halloween, and John Carpenter was going to be there. And movie started late for, I think, there was a Golden State Warriors game on, and I think John Carpenter wanted to catch the end of it. And they were kept pushing the Q&A and the movie start time, so it could, like, coincide, but it didn't happen. So I know the first thing when he went on stage, he's like, you nerds got smartphones. Who's winning the Golden State game? And they were losing. It's like, ah, God damn it. And <laughs> let me say, it's like, if you ever seen John Carpenter Q&A, especially more recently, he wrecks moderator shops. Like, he doesn't fuck around. You ask the question, you get a short answer. You ask a dumb question, you get fucking ether, is what happens. <laughs> and then he also has this, like, you know, stock lines. Like, well, this Q&A is done. I got to go meet my dealer and things like that. But it was during this Q&A, which was a train wreck. And it got to the audience portion, which was also a train wreck. But then someone raised his hands, like, and actually asked Carpenter about the Halloween 3 soundtrack. And... As far as I know, Hall uh, Carpenter doesn't really talk about Halloween 3 too much. And I don't know why. I you know, I don't know if him and Howarth had a personal falling out at some point or what the deal is. Because like there, there's just no mention of it. I don't know if they have a beef. They're doing secret rap battles or whatever's going on. But this is probably the only time I've ever seen Carpenter in person actually talk about Halloween 3. And someone's like... Were you inspired by Krautrock for the Halloween 3 soundtrack? And what I mean by Krautrock is electronic rock bands from Germany. Kraftwerk, Neu, Tangerine Dream, bands like that. And Carpenter pauses. He looks at the guy and says, What the fuck is Krautrock? And, like, it was probably the perfect response. And the guy kind of explains it to him, and I guess, like, Carpenter, you know, is where... And the guy explains it to him. Like, sit down. <laughs> yeah, he's like, you know, like, you know, Tangerine Dream and shit like that. And, and Carpenter's like, yeah, I don't think so. I wasn't really listening to that stuff then. I was listening to rock and roll. If John Carpenter says, what the fuck is crowd rock, sit down. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the question's done, but this guy was like, no, no, let me explain it to you. And Carpenter's like, I, I got to go back and re-listen to it, and I'll see what's up. Did he? Probably not. So anyway, after that Q&A, my wife, Morgan, and I bailed. We go, leave the theater, we get an elevator, and while we're waiting to go down, it was us and two late, two Asian ladies. And all of a sudden, the security dude walks in and is like, okay, this one's probably cool. And then enters John Carpenter and his entourage. And it's like, oh shit. And, but you also got the vibe, like, it's like, oh, I hope these people won't say anything. And it's like, and we were just like, nah, I'm not going to say anything. Just going to, you know, it's cool. We're in an elevator with John Carpenter after you fucking ethered a fucking moderator at a Q&A. And basically the audience and all the stupid audience questions and as the elevator doors are closing i hear this guy like mr carpenter and then oh, i see this no. yeah and then i see the security <laughs> guards like not today buddy and i'm like what the <laughs> fuck is that are they gonna fucking shoot this guy what's going on and the guy like dives into the elevator blocks it Holy and then he's shit. and then just he has this comic book in his hand he's like mr carpenter i just want to shake your hand and, like, give you this comic book. So Carpenter shakes his hand, takes the comic book, guy leaves. This is gross. And then the elevator door shuts. <laughs> and then I think his wife, Sandy King, Carpenter, who's a longtime producer for a lot of films, was in the car, or was in the elevator, too. And she's like, Jesus, there's always got to be that one. And the elevator goes down. They get off on the second floor. We were, like, on the third or whatever. So they get off the elevator. And then the two Asian ladies, like, tap my wife and I on the shoulders, like, excuse me. 
um, that was someone famous. Uh, who was that? And they were like, oh, it's, you know, filmmaker John Carpenter, not thinking they knew who it was. And they're like, the director of The Fog. Holy shit. And it was just like, <laughs> what? And I mean, that, that, yeah, that's fucking awesome. And, yeah, the thing is, never ask John Carpenter to listen to crowd rock. That's the moral of the story. Or jump at him at a fucking elevator. Just have some class. Especially now. We kind of jumped ahead here where we were going to talk about. But so I'm going to backtrack a little bit and talk more about like Halloween 3 and its box office. Let's be honest. And you can check box office totals wherever. Like Halloween 3 just did lukewarm. I don't, it didn't really lose money, but it didn't make the money that the first two made. And obviously the producers who had a stake in Halloween, as well as John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, we're like, we need to do another movie, Michael Myers. We need to do a movie, Michael Myers. And I know Carpenter and Deborah Hill were really resistant against doing it. So, the Carpenter enlisted this guy, author, Dennis Etchison, who wrote the Halloween 3 novelization, as well as the Halloween 2 novelization, Videodrome, The Fog. And he wrote most of those under a pseudonym, Jack Martin. And incidentally enough, while Halloween 3, the movie, didn't do well at the box office, Halloween 3, the novelization, was a hit and sold a fuck ton of books. That's insane. It, yeah. And I think, <laughs> I think that's why Carpenter's like, well, I think you should write a treatment for Halloween 4. And I'm not going to really go too deep into it, but like, more or less, it was supposed to be a direct spiritual sequel to the original Halloween. You can actually go online and find Dennis Etchison's script and check it out. But more or less, it was just like, it, it became more like, the ghost of Michael Myers kind of haunted Haddonfield and it was more it's very cerebral it's very like it's kind of deeper and I think at the end of the day producers looked at it and it's like this is more of that Halloween 3 shit we just want fucking Michael Myers <laughs> put the mask on give him the knife have him stab someone and I, I think at that point Carpenter Hill like sold off their shares of Halloween took a probably fat check for the time and then allowed the producers to just like you know, make the Halloween sequels they wanted. Starting with part four, got Donald Pleasant's comeback. I mean, the the biggest, I mean, I'm, I know a lot of people actually like Halloween four. I think it's okay, but like it clearly, you went to Walmart and bought a fucking off-brand Michael Myers mask for that Michael Myers in Halloween four. That mask fucking sucks. <laughs> you cannot tell me any different. I mean, literally, it's like, if it's not Walmart, it's just like the dollar bin at fucking Spirit Halloween. Like, it's not even Michael Myers. It's like Michael Mayers or something, or like John Mayer mask or something like that. One of the things with Halloween 3 that we kind of talked about earlier is like, you know, people used to shit on it because it's not a direct sequel to Halloween and there's no Michael Myers and stuff. I used to consider Halloween 3 kind of like a secret, like, code movie. Like, if you're talking movies with someone, you're like, yeah, I like this one, that one. And you're like, what do you think of Halloween 3? It's like, oh, that movie kicks ass. It's like, cool, this guy's going to be my friend. It was one of those, like, dividers where you can just kind of tell, like, okay, we're going to be cool because, like, we're on the same page of this. And I don't think it's like that anymore because I think Halloween 3 is finally, or people have really finally come around on Halloween 3. Because I even think back in 2010 when I got my Halloween 3 tattoo, and I basically got that old Good Times VHS cover on my arm. I remember going a few places and people just, like, looking at me like, Halloween 3 is wrong with you but then more and more i get people like oh man that's awesome i love halloween 3 and that kind of stuff and actually that's like i forget when it was but like i was working at a current classic movies film festival at the egyptian and this guy who was like working for tcm one of the volunteers ran up to me he's like 
you have a Halloween 3 tattoo? I have one too. And he pulls up his leg and shows me like the silhouette of the kids walking up the hill. And that person was my dear friend, William Morris. Nice. We talk a lot about this movie. I mean, we should talk about like one of the focal points is obviously Tom Atkins' performance. I, th- I think Tom has two signature movies. Night of the Creeps in this one. And I think, I'm not saying that this is now outgrown Night of the Creeps at this point, but I think it's damn close. Before I moved out here to California, I, I think it was 2006, I went to a horror convention. And I think I went with Bruce Holchak. We were basically just like going to go to dealer rooms because before it was, you know, autograph hound heavy and that kind of stuff. It was more about like you go meet like various like boutique labels that were selling DVDs and at the time, and you buy them and get a deal. So you go hit the someone from Severn was there. You grab Severn stuff, Underground, Synapse. Go, go get those August Underground DVDs. Exactly. No, I'm not even joking. <laughs> I so. had a few. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> You go to conventions that we grab. And, I mean, a horror convention is a lot different today. Or, I mean, take out COVID. But, like, how they were in 2019 is way different how they were in 2005 or six, And you would have celebrities and stuff like that. So, I was walking around the convention. There's some guests, whatever. And then all of a sudden, I see Tom Atkins by himself sitting behind his table with some DVDs and some shirts with his face on it. Drinking a Miller Lite. I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to go talk, talk to Tom Atkins. Oh, yeah. He was really drinking a Miller Lite? He was drinking Miller Lite. Hell, yeah. <laughs> so I go up to Tom Atkins. like, hey, I'm a huge fan. And it's like, I'd like to buy a shirt. And he's like, yeah, definitely. You want me to sign in? And I looked like the shirt was like $25. What, what was the shirt? It was just a, it's, it was a picture. It was an illustrated picture of his face. And then it said Atkins on it. And I remember asking my parents to see if they could dig it out of like my old bedroom in my house. Like before we had them for Beyond Fest last year. And like they couldn't find it. And I was like, Bummer. But, so I bought the shirt. It was $25. Like, you want me to sign it for you? And it was like another 20 and It's like, Tom, I love you. You have to write on my shirt. I, I just, I'm, cool, <laughs> I'm cool with the shirt. Whatever. But, like, at the end of the conversation, you know, I didn't want I Even to this day when I do Q&As and I talk to people, they're like celebrities, famous actors. What I try to, like, not over be overbearing and, like, talk their ear off and be annoying. Conversations coming in, and it's just like, "Hey, I just want you to know, I'm a huge fan of Halloween Three. I think you're great at it." And he just stares at me like, "This, this is at the convention, or this is when you interviewed?" No, him this, at is, the this is at the convention. This is at okay. the convention, 2005. <laughs> okay. So, or 2006, Akin just stares at me like I'm fucking crazy, or he thinks I'm fucking with him. I think he might have actually thought about punching me at that time. No one probably went up to Tom Akin and say, "Yeah, fucking Halloween Three kicks ass." I'm sure there's people like. Halloween 3 sucks! And then, like, run off, and then, like, he just, like, fucking just drink his beer. Which, you know, turn around, like, 13 years later in 2019 when we had Atkins out for Beyond Fest, and, you know, we gave him, we gave him a hell of a tribute. We had The Fog, Night of the Creeps, and Halloween 3. And, you know, one of the, this is one of my favorite things I've ever gotten to do in life is do a Q&A with Tom Atkins. Me and Grant Moniker split duties on it. But during the whole Tomathon during that day, then Christian, Spencer, and Evram, and Grant from Beyond. Actually, no, I think it was just Christian, Spencer, and Grant from Beyond Fest were all wearing, like, the silver shamrock mask. And then you're like, Jim, you're going to be Atkins, but you're going to be Atkins from Night of the Creeps. So we had to go to this place in, like, Burbank. It was called Tuxedo Junction and get this all-white fucking tuxedo so I can look like the dream sequence in Night of the Creeps where Atkins is sitting there drinking, like, a coconut. And we got it. And it was just like, put it on, it was ill-fitting. The guy's like, do you have time to get fit? And like, no, no, we'll just take it as is. So it was like, too big, just not right. <laughs> it was like course. David Byrne. Yeah, it, yeah <laughs> it, it was a fucking David Byrne suit. Or Kanye. Kanye. 
Yeah, it, 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 that, that suit didn't do me any favors. So I got it, had to put on a fake mustache and glasses, and I thought, like, I'm just going to do one intro as we're gonna, like, we was going to get introduced as Tom Atkins that was going to come out and disappoint people. And, like, Christian's like, oh, I'm sorry, I met Dom Atkins, his brother. <laughs> so the other thing about doing that Q&A was, like, I went and got a coconut from, like, Ralph's. I was like, fuck, how do I open a coconut? I've never done it before. And Jonah, Jonah Ray from The Void, Mystery Science Theater, was there, and he's from Hawaii. So obviously he knows how to open a coconut. So he opens it, takes a sip, and he's like, oh, man, there's something wrong. He's like, oh, your coconut's moldy. And I just drank from it. <laughs> so apparently I somehow bought the only moldy coconut from Ralph's. Well, it cracked open, put a straw in it, and just stood around like that. Poison Jonah. Poison Jonah. I'm, I'm glad you're not dead, Jonah. So I thought, like, I'm just going to do this intro. And that's it. And then... The movie ends, and Grant's like, why aren't you back in your tuxedo? We need you back out there. So I had to put this <laughs> fucking thing on. The thing didn't breathe. I know I was in such a hurry for, like, that second intro that I left my clothes on and just threw the fucking tuxedo over top of it. Oh, so, God. So it looked like I, come at, I was coming out in a fucking snowsuit to do this thing. <laughs> and I did a few more times, and then for the Q&A, they're like, you need to leave it on for the Q&A. And I was like, ah don't want photos of me in this stupid ass white tuxedo but it's like you know what fuck it but it's like i i knew i at least had to take off the mustache so atkins finally did, did you have to take it off i i didn't want to be a complete jackass during the <laughs> so atkins finally arrives we're kind of talking to him and he's like oh that's a nice suit and like i don't think he caught on that i was dressed as him in night of the night of the creeps which is probably for the best. But for some reason, because I was wearing the tuxedo, he you thought... You didn't I catch on that you were dressed like him. He just thought you were a jackass. No, no. He actually thought I was in charge for some reason. Or, he kept or asking, you were just dressed up in this giant fucking suit. I think he, oh, thought, yeah, he thought I was in charge for some reason because he kept asking me, like, you know, questions about, like, this and that. It's just like, I, I'm just wearing this tux. I, I didn't want to tell him, like, Dude, I'm wearing this tux to be dressed like you in a fucking. Is it, who's who's that guy? Is he the owner of the theater? Show? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I might as well have been fucking Sid Grom and the Tom Atkins. But it, that Q and A was great. I mean, I'm hoping the Cinematheque posted it at some point. Like I, you know, one of my life highlights was I basically got Tom Atkins to say fuck Michael Myers in that Q and A, and I don't even hate Michael Myers, but. For all you assholes that fucking shit on Halloween because, or Halloween 3 because Michael Myers was in it, fuck you. And Tom Atkins says, fuck you too. You know, it, it's crazy how full circle Halloween 3 came. It became, it went from the bastard child sequel that didn't make sense to basically its own thing. And, you know, I think it's great. And, you know, it's to the point now that there's people that like, when you talk your favorite Halloween films, it's Halloween and Halloween 3. And I've noticed a trend of people like, you know, it's like Halloween's a classic. I love it. But because of all the craziness and the fun and the weirdness and the robots and the Stonehenge and the cultism, and probably because it has more to do with actual Halloween than Halloween, people have been ranking Halloween 3 higher. I love Halloween. And I love Halloween 3. I don't know if I could really pick one over the other because I feel like the Halloween formula was just basically carbon copied by like 8 million other slashers that came out from like 1979 to like now essentially. And the thing is, is like no one's really ever tried to replicate Halloween 3. You know what? I, I've, I said this earlier, I really wish that Halloween 3 had been a success at the time because I think, just imagine the films that would have came out of the Halloween franchise if it dared to continue to be bold, interesting, and not a generic slasher photocopy machine. 
I don't know. Any closing thoughts on Halloween three? No, I, I've I've gushed enough about how much I love it. And I me too. We, I think we both have. Yeah, we're gonna take a quick commercial break, but when we return, we're gonna talk more about movies on Halloween on the Cinematic Void podcast. Unbearable suspense keeps you on the edge of an abyss of terror. Take a cult film odyssey into cinemadness with Cinematic Void. Based in Los Angeles, Cinematic Void is a film series that specializes in horror and exploitation films. Currently, we are hosting Cinematic Void Up All Night in the Cinemadness Movie, a monthly virtual screening series, as well as the Cinematic Void Podcast, where we dive deeper into the world of cult cinema. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what we do, you can support Cinematic Void by joining our Patreon. Until next time, see you in the void. about movies set on the holiday of Halloween on the Cinematic Void Podcast. This is episode one of four, and I guess logically you would think we would continue talking about the Halloween series, but honestly, I've, I've talked about the ones that I want to talk about. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, I don't really need to talk about any other Halloween movies. I mean, they have their moments, like Buster yeah. Rhymes kicking Michael Myers' ass, LL Cool J showing up, Paul Rudd showing up. Just but, showing up? Yeah, just showing up. If you know me, I'm not a big franchise horror guy. And I think, I love, I do like the first three Halloween movies. I actually think Halloween 2 is one of the best direct sequels to a movie. And the main reason I didn't talk about it in this is because I think Halloween 2 is technically a November 1st movie. Because at some point, it crosses midnight, Michael Myers is still walking around. So it's, is it really Halloween? Or is it really November 1st? I'm sure there's debate. It's I'm also a catchy title. It is a catchy title. Yeah, November. It's like Halloween two. November first doesn't really ring off the fucking. Actually, actually you know, I, I, yeah, I like that. Actually, that's great. Fuck it. Yeah, <laughs> they they should have done that. Like Halloween two, November first. Instead, as we get deeper into the next several episodes of this podcast, we're going to talk about some other movies that are that take place on Halloween that aren't related to John Carpenter's Halloween. However, this next set does owe a debt to Halloween in the Halloween franchise. And this first one came out in 1982, and it's pretty early in the slasher cycle. It's directed, photographed, edited, and written by Gary Graver. It stars Jacqueline Groh, Chris Graver, who's Gary's son, Peter Jason, who you've seen in countless John Carpenter films such as Prince of Darkness and They Live, David Carradine, who, if you don't know who David Carradine is, like, he's fucking Bill and Kill Bill, Carrie Snodgrass, who Neil Young wrote a song about called A Man Needs a Maid, and they were married for a while, and that didn't work out. And Just Because she was sick of cleaning up after him? Yeah, he? I'm pretty sure that it is. Like, can you imagine cleaning up after Neil Young? He's probably a pig. <laughs> <laughs> He's just sloppy. Just leaving fucking guitars and, like, picks everywhere and, like, hats. 
and flannels. Make your bed, Neil Young. Make your bed, Neil Young. <laughs> and also his appearance by Steve Railsback, who you've seen in The Stuntman and Turkey Shoot, and the amazing South African E.T. ripoff, Nuki, which I don't think he's sober in one frame in that What's movie. What's it called? It's called Nuki. I've never heard of that. It's a South African E.T. ripoff. It got shown at the one word weird of fawn like a few years back. And I think Grant's used clips of it in the horror over the years. So, but the movie we're talking about is Trick or Treats, and Treats with an S. Not to be confused with Trick or Treat, which is a heavy metal, demonic the, possession the movie. The Aussie one, right? Yeah, the Aussie one. We'll be talking about that on the next episode of the podcast. And not to be confused by Trick or Treat, which is the, antholo- the Michael Doherty on- anthology film, which we'll be talking on another episode. This is Trick or Treats. And... Unlike the other trick-or-treat movies, with their various R or lack of S's, this has one of the best, weirdest credits ever put in a film. And that is Magic Consultant. And who was the Magic Consultant? Orson Welles. That's right. And we'll get into why Orson Welles was the Magic Consultant on it in a second. But for those of you who haven't seen trick-or-treats, basically a babysitter, shocking, Shocking, shocking coming out of the slasher film Halloween cycle. Director, horror directors hate babysitters. That's a, I don't know if that's a little known fact. I mean, maybe they got had ba- bad babysitters when they were growing up or something like that. Shit was probably wild in the 50s. Everyone has this nostalgia that the 50s were great, but maybe there's just shitty babysitters and no one knew. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but anyway, a babysitter is stuck watching over a young brat on Halloween night who keeps playing vicious pranks on her. To add to her trouble, the boy's deranged father has escaped from an asylum. Hmm. hmm, where have I heard that before? And is planning to make a visit on Halloween night. And again, as we already hinted at, Orson Welles is the magic consultant on it. And the reason why Welles was involved is because Gary Graver was his longtime cinematographer, specifically in the 70s. And Gary shot a lot of stuff that, like, sadly didn't get released, but thankfully, has been released in the last couple of years, including The Other Side of the Wind. And just this year, at um, I think it's playing Venice right now, um, the Dennis Hopper, Orson Welles movie. You know, I've, I've always known Graver uh, just from his work in porn. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, Gary, Gary needed to get... Gary had to pay rent, man. So he did hardcore porn, softcore porn, exploitation, art films... Horror films, you name it. Gary was a writer, director, editor. He busted his ass. And, like, funny enough, when he was, like, doing stuff for Orson, I don't think Orson was paying him, so he had to go take other things like porn to pay the bills. He would ask Orson advice. He's like, how would I edit this? And Orson would be like, you should do a montage in the porn or something like that. Kind of funny, crazy stuff. But, like, Gary is probably very unsung in the annals of filmmaking and you know also exploitation filmmaking because like not only did he work with Orson Welles he worked a lot with Al Adamson worked on things like Dracula versus Frankenstein and the Naughty Stewardess so you know Gary fucking busted his ass and worked like go look at his IMDB and like just look at all of his credits like he worked on everything and a lot of porn not a lot of people have seen this film and you know, the people have kind of give it bad rap, but like, again, this, I'm going to be a contrarian here. I kind of enjoy it for what it is. And it's, it's a fun, stupid slasher movie. It gets dark at times, but like, it, you know, it, there, there's interesting things that happen to it. And a lot of it has to deal with the practical jokes that 
Chris Graber, whose Gary's son plays on his babysitter, which is all orchestrated by Orson Welles. The main influence on this film is, one, Halloween. And I'm going to venture and guess because Peter Jason's character, who's the dad who escapes from the Santa Asylum, like steals a nurse's outfit so he's in drag, I feel like there's a little bit of Dress to Kill in there as well. Especially if you've seen Dress to Kill and you've seen the ending, you'll get the connection there. A few years ago, I had Peter Jason out with producer Sandy King, who's John Carpenter's wife, for a screening of Prince of Darkness, and we were talking a lot beforehand, we were talking about a lot of stuff, and I mentioned this movie to him, and he, like, almost turned sheet white, because he's like, oh, fuck, I don't want to talk about this movie. And I don't know if he's embarrassed by it or what his feelings are, but, like, he did tell me a story that after the movie was wrapped and it was released, he got a letter from the Screen Actors Guild because... Trick or Treats wasn't a union movie. So basically everyone that worked on it, Steve Railsbeck, David Carradine, you name it, all got this slip that they had to appear at a hearing for SAG for as to why they did a non-union movie and did he get cleared first. So he goes in, and then once he shows up, he realizes he's the only one that showed up. Everyone else blew it off because apparently all SAG could do at the time was send you a letter and say, hey, you need to come in for this. And if you didn't come in, they couldn't do shit. So, poor Peter Jason went in, almost got fined, almost got, like, his career ruined by doing trick-or-treats, non-union. But I think they just kind of gave him a slap on the wrist and let him go. And that was kind of fun. But, like, the, the better story, which, speaking of David Carradine, that I... It's not my story to tell, but, like, him and Sandy told me the most insane story about David Carradine at John Carradine, his father's funeral. And... Maybe I can get either Peter or Sandy on the podcast at some point to tell it, but like, it is the best story I've ever heard that involves like a Hollywood family and a funeral. And I know I'm overselling it. I know you want me to just tell it, but it's like, it's not my story. I don't know if they really want to tell it publicly, but you know, it's definitely a story they've told a lot. And it's absolutely priceless. It's absolutely insane. And yeah. If you hadn't run to Peter Jason or Sandy King at some point, just ask them, like, hey, um, I heard that you guys went to John Carradine's funeral. And just, they they should just go on autopilot and tell one of the, the best stories I've ever heard. So much so that when it came time to do the Prince of Darkness Q&A with them, I couldn't think about Prince of Darkness at all because all I was thinking about is this fucking story about John Carradine's funeral. And, like, it just, like... I, I just couldn't get it out of my head. And like the whole time, it's just like, I almost wanted to bring him to Q and a, it's like, yeah, we're talking about John Carpenter's prison of darkness, but let's talk about the time he went to John Carradine's funeral. But yeah, it's a great story. I wish I could tell it, but it's not mine to tell. And now I've teased enough that you're probably pissed. Like just fucking tell it, but whatever. I can't wait till we stop rolling. <laughs> yep. I'll tell you, Nick, but sorry, listeners. And I'm not going to tell you guys. Yeah. I mean, you know, if enough people join Patreon, Maybe. There we go. You got a pass to hear it. <laughs> so, a couple other things about it. Essentially, David Carradine, Carrie Snodgrass, and Railsback's, like, appearance in the movie are extended cameos. Like, I almost feel like Steve Railsback was in the middle of, like, either shooting another movie or a play that he just happened to be doing. And, like, Gary Graber just, like, kind of rolled up, brought a camera, stuck a light on him, and just, like, shot the shit real quick and just, like, bailed out. Literally rails back scenes of him like preparing to like go on stage for a play and he's putting makeup on. He's just sitting behind a table and like all that. It's just, it feels like literally they just rolled up, shot it and left and like, there's 50 bucks, Steve. Thanks a lot. This is solid. 
Other things to note, like, the main location was actually Carrie Snodgrass's house for this shot. But, like, for... I'm not sure why. I'm sure there's probably a reason or whatever. But they only shot from, like, 6 p.m. to midnight each night. And I think it took three weeks to shoot, which doesn't seem long. But, like, as fast as, like, Gary was cranking out movies, be it, like, exploitation, horror, Orson Welles stuff, or porn, it was a lot of time for him. And if you want to check it out, you can, not committally, you can go on Amazon Prime and see it. I know Code Red put it out on Blu-ray a few years ago. I don't know if it's still in print or not, but yeah. I, I enjoy Trick or Treats for what it is. It might not be the greatest slasher ever made, but like there, there's a zaniness to it. And a lot of it has to do with like Peter Jason does a over-the-top great performance. Chris Graver is obnoxiously bratty doing all these like fucking pranks. And, like, they're, they're not even, like, regular pranks. They're, like, self-harm pranks that makes the babysitter <laughs> freak out each time. Like, he's, act, like, cutting his thumb off. He's like, ah, shoot, you know, there's their bloody thumb stump sitting there. And she goes, and he's like, ha-ha, got you again. And, like, just over and over again, just that kind of stuff. So, I, I like trick-or-treats. It might not be for everyone, but, you know, Halloween season. If you don't feel like watching Halloween, Halloween 3 for the millionth time, check out trick-or-treats. Moving on, we're going to, this one isn't as direct to Halloween, but it deals with pumpkins. It's a slasher movie, and I like this movie a lot. I like it more than Trick or Treats, and it's from 1988. It's called Hack-A-Lantern. It also goes under the titles Death Mask and Halloween Night. The film was directed by Indian filmmaker Jag Mandara, who also made the interesting Jigsaw Murders that shows, um, Michelle Johnson from Waxworks. I think that's out on Blu-ray, too. It's a pretty good, like, thriller. Not necessarily slasher, but, like, you know, thriller-killer type thing. Uh, the movie stars High Pike, who had a pretty crazy career, if you look at his filmography. He was in Dolomite, Slithis, and Blade Runner. And he plays this kindly grandfather who's actually a leader of a satanic cult that sacrificed people on every Halloween night. They really, uh, they really push the high pike thing too. There's, he's like, you know, he's like the big billing in this movie. And when I was watching that, I'm like, who the fuck is high pike? And then, yeah, I mean, I guess he's in Blade Runner, but uh, I don't know, man. I don't know who high pike is, but he looks like fucking Gary Newman now, <laughs> like just like him. It's crazy. Gary Newman aged into being high pike. It's crazy, but it happened. <laughs> Shout out to both Gary Newman and high pike. And rest in peace, high pike. I mean. His performance is way over the top, but, like, it, it's actually kind of good because, like, you, clearly he's, like, not giving a fuck and having fun. He's just, like, chewing the fucking scenery and all that stuff. The movie also stars Gregory Scott Cummings, who was, also, who was in um, Phantom of the Mall, and, and Cannibal Hooker's Kathiana Gardner. Now, Cummings plays the grandson of Pike's character, who's being groomed to join the, the cult for this Halloween. And he keeps having these really surreal nightmares where, like, there's a lady that, like, has a snake shooting lasers out of her eyes, and there's, like, a heavy metal band playing, and, like, there's a few scenes like that, and those are really, like, well done, kind of tripped out. They rock. They kick ass. I mean, they're a little silly, but, yeah, they, they essentially kick ass. And then, like, he also has a lot of rage, so he does a lot of, like, working out and yelling and, like, that kind of shit. <laughs> Listen to heavy metal stuff. The movie's not so much riffing on Halloween you know, the franchise or anything like that, but it's more of a comment on the PMRC and the satanic panic of the 80s. Obviously with the heavy metal stuff and the satanic cults and that kind of thing. 
As I said, I like this movie quite a bit. And for whatever reason, it's got a bad rap online. And, you know, sure, the satanic cult looks like they bought their outfits from Spirit Halloween Budget Bin. They're just like, you know, kind of flimsy red cloaks. They, again, Spirit Halloween Budget Bin. And the performances are all over the place. Like, High Pike going over the top works. Some of the actors aren't up to snuff, so you get some, like, really, really inconsistent performances within the same frame. Not everyone's High Pike. Not, not yeah. I mean, you can't, not everyone could go from Dolomite to Blade Runner, so it is what it is. But the surreal heavy metal nightmares, there's some really good slasher kills in it. They might not be the bloodiest, but I think they're pretty decent. And there's a really, really cool Halloween party sequence. And then, again, has a heavy metal band playing. And I think the movie's a lot of fun. And a few years back for the Arrow Horathon, I this was one of my pitches that Grant to include in... I knew Lewis Justin, who runs Massacre Video, shout out to Lewis. I knew he had Hack Lantern, and I was like, this would be great to play somewhere in like the middle of the horathon because of just how it is. I didn't go to the screen, but I know Lewis did, and basically he said he just kind of sat back and watched the audience, like, you know, kind of laugh in the movie, because there's, there's laughable things in it. There's some unintentional humor, and there's things that don't work to make it. But then the movie does something really extraordinary, and I, this is why I think it's sneaky good. There's a twist in it. Where the whole audience is like, fuck, the movie got me. And I know that might seem like a spoiler, but like you won't necessarily see it coming. Basically, he just says like it was great to watch the audience think they were like above the movie, and then the movie just like got you, motherfucker. I think it's it's a fun thing to watch on Halloween. Kinda, you know, kinda be nice if someone would screen it around that time and you know oh, yeah, before I forget. Speaking of Masker Video, on October 16th, um, the Cinematis movie is going to be presented by them. We're showing a movie from their catalog, and yeah, I'm just going to leave that right there. You know, back to hack lantern it's like, you know, there's worse slasher movies you can watch. And there's definitely worse slasher movies that take place on Halloween you can watch. For example, the next movie we're going to talk about is from 1995. It's produced by Fred Owen Ray, who made Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers and, you know, made a lot of fun stuff. And it's directed by Steve Latshaw. And Steve and Ray have worked together on countless things. I think Steve wrote a bunch of scripts for some of Fred's movies, and Fred produced all of his stuff and that kind of thing. The movie stars um, Linnea Quigley and features appearances by screen queen Brink Stevens, Cameron Mitchell in his final role, and somehow John Carradine, who we already mentioned back in Trick or Treats, who had been dead for seven years when the film was released. I can only be talking about Jacko. A.K.A. Shit Pickle. <laughs> now, Nick, can you talk about where Shit Pickle came from? It's in the commentary uh, that the director and the producer do for this movie on the DVD. I think the DVD came out in 2005. I can't remember who put that out. But, I, uh, I, I think they probably put it out themselves because like, I think it was the 10th anniversary DVD of Jacko. It's probably a bit or something, but one of them mentions that there was a critic that referred to the movie as, instead of Jacko, Shit Pickle. Uh, and so uh, it's probably a bit or something, but you know the director gets mad during the commentary and storms off, and so there you go, shit pickle, shit pickle. So you know, plot-wise, shit pickle, aka Jacko, it, it's a movie about a warlock who's put to death in the ye old times. I guess like you know, pilgrim early, of, you know, those kind of times. And he swears revenge on the family that put him to death, which is this family called the Kelly family. Then we leap to the present, a.k.a. the 90s, and a bunch of, like, shithead teens go to a graveyard where this warlock is buried and take the 
gravestone out. And what is unleashed is Jacko, aka Shit Pickle, who f- puts a 187 on all three of these little punks, <laughs> and then sets off to get revenge on the Kelly family, or basically the descendants of the Kelly family that put him to death. I'm not going to lie, the movie does have its moments. It's, I wouldn't say it's good, but like, you know, smoke a bowl, have a couple beers. Watch stock footage of John Carradine and a stand-in actor showing him from behind. <laughs> and it's a completely ridiculous scene. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you if you can get past that and there's some, like, gratuitous nudity for no reason that doesn't really even fit in the movie. The movie almost feels like a PG movie, but it's... For all the reasons. Yeah, for all the Well, <laughs> they, they had to sell some VHS or whatever. <laughs> I mean, it, it's got some decent kills. And I'll be honest that the Jacko shit pickle monster whatever itself looks pretty cool it's a giant pumpkin monster and it's like i can't hate on that i think it looks cool something that i found when researching this movie and by researching looking on imdb that someone in the trivia section claims that tim burton saw jacko and that was his inspiration for jack skellington and i was like that is the weirdest fucking thing i ever heard it can't be true but I'm going to see if I can vet this. So I did a search online. Couldn't find shit. So I think it's bullshit. But if any of you listening can prove to me that Tim Burton saw Jacko and was like, there it is. That's my inspiration for Jack Skellington. Let us know. And in fact, let Fred Olin Ray and the director of the movie know because they're probably owed some fucking sweet Disney money for... I always thought he stole it from uh, Return to Oz. Wasn't there a pumpkin-headed guy in Return to Oz too? Yeah, that's probably where Tim got it from. You never know with Tim Burton. It's just like, he seems like a guy that would have discerning taste and be like, what can I watch? Huh, this Jacko movie, this seems interesting. I I don't know anything about Tim Burton. You know, he could easily watch Jacko and be like, there it is. If there's anything I know about Tim Burton, he watched Jacko. (laughs) You know, I mean, I I did, when we talked about The Passion of Christ in the last episode, and I said, like, I'm, you know, I remember reading or being told that the dwarf that plays the demon baby in Passion of Christ is the same dwarf from Phenomena. You know what? Fuck it. Let's just say Tim Burton watched Jacko. That's where you got Jack Skellington. Fuck yeah. It's on the internet now. It's obviously true. You already mentioned this part of it, but we were talking about John Carradine's participation in this movie. And again, Sandy King and Peter Jason have the best story about his funeral, which I can't talk about, but we can talk about him appearing in this movie. And from what I looked into... His bit was filmed in 1985, which had to be for a completely unrelated project. I don't know what that project is. I know Fred Olin Ray shot a bunch of stuff. and like, Because I know there was, a, there was a period where John Carradine, at least 10 years after he was dead, was still appearing in movies. Because people would just shoot footage of him just like jabbing about whatever and just like well, you they can't. Just have him in, in a cloak and some kind of like, as some kind of Star Wars character in this <laughs> fucking movie? I mean, I mean, I mean, I guess he could be Obi-Wan Kenobi. He's the Obi-Wan of um, shit pickle. Yeah. But yeah, Carradine stuff was filmed in 85, and somehow it's in there with body doubles. And then there's poor Cameron Mitchell, whose last movie was this. So this movie came out in 95. Cameron Mitchell died in 94. He shot his part in 93. And I love Cameron Mitchell. Cameron Mitchell's another, I'd say, Nas-like actor. He's usually good in everything, but like... Man, he picked some bullshit beats. And, you know, I, I when I think of last movies, it's really Jacko a bad way to go out. Poor Cameron Mitchell. 
I mean, you know, Orson Welles' last movie was Transformers the movie, and he was fucking Unicron. <laughs> That's fucked up, dude. <laughs> be careful what you pick, because you never know what your, like, last statement's gonna be. We all can't be Oliver Reed and David Hemming, whose last movie was Gladiator, and went on to win an Academy Award. Like, sometimes your last movie's gonna be Jacko, a.k.a. Shit Pickle. All right. We got one last movie to talk about in this first episode on Halloween on the Cinematic Void podcast, and it's it's a little different than the others because it's an it's a comedy, although your your laughs will vary. It's from 1982. It's directed by Graydon Clark, who made the absolute masterpiece Joysticks, as well as Without Warning and Satan's Cheerleaders. The film stars Joe Don Baker, Mitchell. It, for all you Mystery Science Theater fans. Uh, it also has Academy Award winner, George Kennedy. Yep, I'm making sure I'm putting down Academy Award winner on this. It also has Stella Stevens, Night Warning's Julia Duffy, Scott McGinnis, who re-teamed with um, Baker and Clark for Joysticks, and he's also in one of my other favorite movies, Secret Admirer. E.G. Daly, who was the voice of Tommy Pickle on Rugrats, as well as Dottie from Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and she's also in Better Off Dead. And... Character actor Charles Napier, who you've seen in a ton of things. And the film debut of one Andrew Dice Clay. I'm, of course, talking about Wacko, which is a slasher movie spoof parody in the vein of, like, Airplane. Airplane, Naked Gun, uh, Kentucky Fried Movie, all that stuff. Uh, It had National Lampoons. It, It has a feel of, like, all that shit, man. Like, as I was watching this, it was like, I would kind of start to zone out a little bit. And it feels like a real horror movie for a second, but like a bad crap one from the 80s, you know? Like, so it just feels like a bad horror movie. And then you get pulled out of it with like some dumbass joke that's fucking, I don't know, I thought it was hilarious too. But uh, yeah, man, this dude, so much fun. Wacko kicks ass. You know, I talked about on a rewatch listen recently about Albert Soule's Pandemonium, which is another kind of horror parody. And like, I guess at the beginning of the 80s, because so many slasher movies came out, Obviously, there's a race to be, like, who's going to make the definitive airplane-esque parody of those movies. So you had Pandemodium, you also had, like, Student Bodies, Saturday the 14th, and um, National Lampoon's Class Reunion. Just just to name, like, a handful. I, there might That might be all of them, or there might be, like, 20 more of them, I'm forgetting. Green Clark is another student, like, Gary Graver of um, Al Adamson. They all come from the same, you know, exploitation school low-budget, you know, cranking movies out. But this is obviously the airplane version of a slasher movie. And for the plot, 13 years after the lawnmower killer killed her sister, high school student Mary Graves, played by Duffy, and obsessed detective Dick Harbringer, played by Joe Don Baker, are on the lookout for the killer to reappear during the annual Halloween pumpkin prom. You know, the, the two main influences on Wacko are, one, Halloween, clearly. And the other one's Prom Night, which is the uh, was one of the other four slasher movies Jamie Lee Curtis did like through the 70s and 80s. It was Halloween, Halloween 2, Prom Night, and Terror Train. And it, it's a pretty good mix of both Halloween and Prom Night. It definitely leans a little more to Prom Night because of the actual like in-school stuff. It's like the jokes are hit and miss. And depending on your tolerance and taste, you're either going to enjoy it or hate it. They... Bro, this movie starts off with the father climbing into, climbing up into the window and looking into the window while his daughter's getting ready for prom. She catches him and goes, "Daddy!" Like, like it's like this funny, like that's, so that's the comedy we're dealing with here. But 
I fucking I'm sorry I love it. <laughs> it's so dumb. It's so dumb. You can't take it seriously. Come on. <laughs> Again, Oscar winner George Kennedy climbing a ladder. Fuck? Dude, this movie has more creepy daughter father daughter shit than fucking Pornhub. <laughs> <laughs> it's insane, oh. but like it's a goofy joke that works because the movie's so just like quirky, dumb. If you just take it for, like, a product of its time, I guess, which is, like, I guess, like, I don't know, pedophile jokes were a product of the early 80s. I, I mean, <laughs> for me, you know, I I think there's some good jokes. Like, the one of the, my favorite sight gags is that they go to, like, the one school is the Hitchcock school, and they're playing fo- the football game against the Palma. Because there's always that thing about Hitchcock versus the Palma. The Palma's trying to be the new Hitchcock kind of thing. So... Um, but the, the, the thing that works for me in this movie is that, like, everyone seems committed to, like, the stupidity of the premise. Mm-hmm. And everyone just kind of gives their all and just, like, regardless if it's, like, funny or not, they're just going for it. Throughout it, like, I think Joe Don Baker gives a really, really tour-de-force performance. Obviously, it's over top and, like, obviously has no fucking shame in anything he's doing in this movie. But, you know, I feel like everyone genuinely was committed to making this movie and having fun and it does show whether you think it's funny or not i don't know i mean leave it up to you you can watch it on amazon prime vinegar syndrome put out a nice blu-ray of this which is probably better than the version of amazon prime i think that's just a vhs pool which is like so dark you might as well just like not watch it but yeah pick up the blu-ray Pick, you up, want to actually pick up the see Blu-ray them. if you want to see Andrew Dice Clay getting a boner at the dining room at the dining room table, dressed as Superman, and the dining room table lifts up and tips over. If you want to see that, check it out. If, if that joke is your bag, Wacko <laughs> is going to fill it up. So one last thing about Wacko is uh, there's a scene where they're having like the the uh, school dance or whatever, and there's a power pop band playing that's like you know kind of in the in the same realm as like the kinks or the cars or something like that. And uh, I remember the lyrics are, don't let me catch you messing around with my baby. And it's like just perfect uh, late 70s, early 80s power pop. Uh, it made for film, which we, there's a, a number of those songs that we've probably talked about in the past. Yeah. There's Baby Live from Neon Maniacs. Oh, there's yeah. obviously Pinball Summer. I, you know, if I had a little bit of money to like just kind of throw around, I, I, I kind of want to do a cinematic void power pop collection oh, of yeah. songs for movies so it'd be like pinball summer baby lied this song there's a couple other i'm forgetting off the top of my head but like there's some straight up fucking bangers you can put on there like there really are it's too bad you can't even make like a spotify or apple playlist of these types of songs because they're just not even up you know yeah i mean it's kind of sad because both neon maniacs and i think wacko don't have official soundtracks available and like you know there's like countless fucking soundtrack labels at this point that do special editions Instead of reissuing Goblin for the 800th time, put out the Wacko soundtrack. Put out Pinball Summer. Put out Neon Maniacs. You know, don't don't just put out obvious shit. Put out some fucking good shit with some good power pop. Or partner up with us and let us curate that power pop uh, compilation. I mean, you and I would love to do it. So, hey, you own a record label. You got some money burning a hole in your pocket. You like power pop. You like horror movies. Hit us up. We'll curate your fucking cult film power pop soundtrack. All right, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we return, we're going to be back with Rewatch and Listen on the Cinematic Void Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, an important announcement 
from Academy Award-winning actor Mr. George Kennedy. One very serious point. Lawnmowers do not kill people. People kill people. Wacko, wacko, wacko. At last, a motion picture made by, for, and about people just like you and me. Welcome back. It's now time for... On the Cinematic Void podcast. This is the part of the podcast where we talk about all the things we've been reading, watching, and or listening to. All right, Nick, tell me what you've been reading, watching, and or listening to. All right, well, you know damn well I've been listening to Conway the Machines, From a King to a God, his new full length that came out Friday. Uh, we were sitting in your car and listened to it like pretty much the moment it dropped on Apple Music. And uh, I, I, don't, I, I won't speak for you, but I can say I'm completely blown away. And it's probably instantly my record of the year. I mean, I, I'm on the same page as you, and like, there's been some fucking just amazing fire fucking hip hop records that dropped this year. There's been Alfredo, there's like Unlocked, there's like, fuck, Conway has had a few EPs that are just up there too. And like, I, at least right now, until we get to maybe December when I sit down and re listen to everything, like, this is like, I don't even think it's close right now. I like, I thought Alfredo, like, it's gonna be hard for anybody to top that as like, a hip hop record, let alone a record of the year, and like I think, I think Conway fucking just snaked it. That's it. I guess I just got to go like Alfredo. Maybe we'll just call that an EP. Yeah. That's my favorite EP. But from a king to a god, that's the shit, dude. So fucking Conway, new SZA single hit different. I think it's super sick. Yeah, and then just uh, I've been listening to some old shit, uh, New Order, Broken English Club, Suburban Hunting LPs. His first full length is super sick. Uh, Antarctica. Band from early 2000s, members of Christie Front Drive, doing kind of a dancey New Order sort of thing. So I guess I've been just jamming some like electronic type shit lately. And then Conway. And then watching, I uh, I would just, I haven't watched anything, man. I have watched Cobra Kai. I watched both seasons of Cobra Kai, but I haven't really been watching any movies. I watched Trick or Treat recently, Trick with the R, <laughs> Michael Doherty. I just love it. It's just, um, you know, it's getting close to Halloween. Well, we'll be talking about that more on another episode of the On Halloween series for the Cinematic Void podcast, for sure. And uh, that's about it for me, man. I've been reading. I've been I've been making music. I got a little new synth. So talk about that new. Actually, talk about that new synth because oh, like, you I guess it out. yeah, I'll brag about it. I just got an OP one, and that thing's been out for like ten years at this point. But I don't know. This thing's sick. I'm playing it in Jim's car at the drive-in. <laughs> we're not we're not watching movies. We're playing with synths in the car. It's all good. I mean, honestly, because you know I'm. I'm working the drive-in, so it's like, yeah, I could sit down and watch the movie, but instead it's like, you know, I'm catching up on new music, working on other things. It's like, it's, it's like, you know, it's like being at home and putting a movie on the background. I've, so, already, I've already seen The Fly. I've already seen The Blob. I've seen these a hundred times. So we're, we're playing with synths. We're <laughs> playing with synths. We're listening <laughs> to Conway the Machine. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I'll just go ahead and segue here. Like, reading-wise, I haven't been reading shit, like... I mean, I've been doing research, obviously, for all these episodes, but, like, sitting down and reading a book for pleasure, it, you know, I was reading, like, um, the roller coaster, like, novelization, finished that, that, <laughs> you know, it's fun, it's weird, there's definitely some liberties with that, but, yeah, recently I haven't been reading anything. Um, watching, though, I've been, I've been skimming through a lot of the movies we were talking about, like, I, you know, I'm probably gonna end up watching Halloween 3 closer to Halloween, and I've seen it enough times. I mean, fuck, I have the goddamn tattoo. I should know that movie like the back of my fucking hand. <laughs> I should know it better than my wife. I should know better than my cats. I should know better than my parents at this point. 
I mean, I don't need it. I don't really need to see Halloween 3 again, but I guarantee I'm going to fucking probably watch it again when we get closer to October 31st. But things I've watched recently, I recently re-upped my Shutter account because, like, when I was looking through, like, sometimes it's not really convenient for me to pull out a Blu-ray and watch something. So I was like, when I was doing research, and I'm sending you links of things that we can, you know, watch for the podcast for the next four episodes. I was like, shit, a lot of this stuff's on Shutter. I'm just going to re-up Shutter. So I got that. And instead of watching anything that we were talking about, like, I noticed they had, like, a new restoration of Fade to Black on it from 1980. It's, uh, it's a really interesting, like, kind of slasher movie. I know a lot of people are kind of going ape about it for, you know, for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's basically, it stars Dennis Christopher as a film-obsessed loner who is, like, bullied and becoming a psychotic murderer known as the Celluloid Killer. He more or less dresses up as different, like, you know, monsters or actors and, like, takes revenge on people. And it has a big climax at the Chinese theater. I hadn't seen this movie since the Anchor Bay days when I had the old DVD. And, like, I might have thrown it on maybe as recent as, like, early to mid-2000s, but I haven't seen it since. So, like, seeing a nice HD, like, remaster of it on Shudder was like, oh, that that's fucking great. And I know a lot of people are, like, kind of currently hot hyping it. It's definitely worth the hype. So if you haven't seen Fade of Black... It's really good, and it's also produced by Halloween producer Erwin Yablins, who, after Halloween, made a series of movies trying to chase making the next Halloween. And I'll just go through a couple of things out there he produced, which he made Hell Night with Linda Blair, which is supposed to be a haunted house thing that's sort of like Halloween. There's Fade to Black, which is more of a like an art house version of Halloween. He also made Prison, which is Halloween in a prison. You know, I mean, <laughs> ba- basically Erwin was just obsessed with trying to, like, catch lightning in a bottle again and like i think i like all those movies but like again like halloween's its own fucking monster and i don't think there's been a fuck ton of slasher movies came after halloween and no one really none of them really ever touched halloween again but at least for faded black because it's so different so weird kind of artsy really dark and if you've ever been like a a loner who's watched movies it's it'll definitely hit a little close to home, so definitely check out Fade to Black. The other thing I watched recently was a movie I've heard about, but I've never seen. I actually ordered this from Dark Force Entertainment. It is Primal Rage from 1988. It is a Italian-American co-production. It's one of those great Italian productions that went down to Florida to shoot. Um, it's written by Umberto Lindsay, and it's directed by Vittorio Rambaldi, who is the the son of um, special effects legend and Oscar winner, Carlo Rambaldi, who also did effects on the movie. And more or less, it's it's this Florida college where they're doing experiments on baboons. And one of the baboons, like, attacks this, like, college newspaper reporter is trying to get an expose on all the weird shit's going on. And when he gets bit, it basically makes them go crazy and become these, like, weird animalistic humans that attack people. And... Because I just watched it, I'm going to be adding it to the next episode of the um, On Halloween podcast because it also takes place on Halloween. And, like, the whole climax, like, it's nuts because it's this, you know, Halloween party. And, like, all the costumes are, like, no one would be wearing these costumes. These are clearly Carlo Rombaldi, like, stepping up and making some crazy costumes (laughs) to kind of go with, like, the mayhem that's to come. But, like, there's, like, these three jocks that get bit, scratched, whatever, who become affected, and they're wearing these, like, skeleton masks with these blinking red eyes, and it's really fucking creepy. Like, the movie's absolutely nuts. Listening-wise, we already talked about that Conway the Machine record. Like, that, again, probably record of the year. But then I know, like, his other Griselda cohorts, like, um, West Side Gun and Benny, 
Benny the Butcher have fucking records dropping too. So like, who knows? I know I've said this before, but Griselda is essentially the guy to buy voices, Robert Pollard of hip hop with like just how many releases they drop. And, you know, there's a difference between just one Robert Pollard and like three dudes and a crew, but like they are way prolific. But on the, like Pollard, a lot of stuff they put out is really fucking good and really interesting. So I'm excited to hear all of the stuff they got coming out. Um, I actually went back a few years and checked out a Conway mixtape that I, I was listening to it last time we did the podcast and forgot to mention it. So I'm going to mention it now. It's a mixtape called The Devil's Recheck. The first song on it called Coco in the Mirror is a fucking banger. I think they use, like, funny enough sound clips from the Rob Zombie movie Devil's Rejects, but <laughs> that, that's forgivable because the fucking mixtape is, like, fucking great. Another thing I've thrown on recently was uh, an old favorite of mine, actually. It's um, Focus by the Souls of Mischief. Souls of Mischief were part of the Hieroglyphics crew with Delta Funky Homo Sapien. Uh, they were on Jive Records before Jive decided they were going to put out Britney Spears and NSYNC Records. When they were just doing like hip hop stuff. I and, think uh, uh, I think somebody was wearing a hieroglyphics uh, face mask in that new Conway oh, uh, the, Method the, Man video. The, the the lemon fucking yeah, I did see that. I was like, oh, that's fucking rad. Focus is a little different from Souls of Mischief because like you know it's four guys they usually rap together, but like these it's a collection of almost like solo songs from each artist, and occasionally they do a team up here and there, but it's essentially like solo songs in a combined record. Uh, it came out after like their second record on Jive, No Man's Land, and then they got dropped. And I can't, I'm not sure if this record was intended to be the next follow up or it's just something that happened. But like I, I used to have it on tape, and then I also had it on vinyl. And I had a for years I had a vinyl rip on my iTunes, and then since I'm on Apple Music now, they have the record, so I can like not listen to it without all the pops and scratches that my record had. And if you like hip-hop and you like 90s, early 2000s hip-hop, like, this record's pretty good. In fact, if you want a recommendation, you should already own 93 Definity by Souls Mischief. It's one of the best records by any artist in any genre, period. And lastly, in a weird switch, because it just kind of got stuck in my head, um, I threw on Use Your Illusion 2 by Guns N' Roses, which I probably haven't listened to since, like, fuck, I don't even know, like... When that record come out? 94, 95? Oh, man. I guess it was that late. I, I never think of hair maybe it's either, being that Maybe late, it's but... earlier than that, because, like, no, it probably was, like, more like 91, 92. I mean, I, I obviously could look it up, but, like, it, you know, it was around when the Black Album came out by Metallica. And I remember, I remember like, buying this tape mostly because the one song was on the Terminator 2 soundtrack, which, shout out to my dad, who took me out of school early to go see Terminator 2 on opening day. But, um... I, I hadn't really, I wouldn't say I'm a big Guns N' Roses fan. I don't dislike them by any means. and but It's just like, it's not something I put on. But like, the first two songs in this record sometimes get stuck in my head for weird reasons. And it's Civil War and 14 Years. And like, they're really interesting, really well done songs. And like, I was out for a late night walk one night. And all of a sudden it's like, fuck, why are these songs stuck in my head? And it's like, ah, oh, fuck it, I'm just going to throw them on Apple Music. And it's just like, you know, I was pleasantly surprised. Like, it's. You know, the album's pretty good. I mean, I did. I was skipping around just listening to what I wanted to listen to. But, yeah, it was kind of nice to throw that on, and it's like a change of pace from, like, I've been listening to a lot of, like, death metal and, like, noisy hardcore and, like, hip-hop, obviously. So it's just, like, throwing, like, a rock record. What's so civil about war anyway? Ooh, that's good. I mean... You know, if you're listening to Guns N' Roses, we'll make a docking fan out of you just yet. <sighs> Doubt it. 
Anyway, this concludes this episode of the Cinematic Void Podcast. We're going to be back each week with a new episode until we conclude our On Halloween series. Like I said, this is episode one. We'll be back next week with episode two. We're going to be talking about some other films, including Hocus Pocus, Bill Heinzman, the lead zombie from Night of Living Dead's like, unofficial sequel to Night of Living Dead, The Flesh Eater, and much, much more. So if you're not already, subscribe to the podcast. We're on Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher. You can also listen to it on Patreon and, of course, SoundCloud. And if you like the podcast, give us that five-star or the thumbs-up or whatever the fuck is on whatever platform you listen to because the more you do that, if you like the podcast, it brings more attention to it so other people can listen to it and hear us talk about how Halloween 3 is fucking awesome. Until next time, see you in the void. void.